All right, well, good morning again. And we are in the Gospel of John again this morning. I know that's a little different than how we've been doing things, but we are in the Gospel of John. Now, we have been going through the Gospel of John, uh, every word, every verse. Uh, we haven't left anything out. We, we find ourselves in verse 22, chapter 4 this morning, and uh, we ended up doing this in two parts, really. We're talking about the woman at the well, and it's a pretty lengthy story, and so we're picking up really halfway through. So what I'd like to do, uh, in case you weren't here with us last week or we just need a refresher, I'd like to start at the beginning of this story and, and read all the way through the text that we'll be focusing on today. So uh, if you will look with me at the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through uh, 42, which is the entire story here of the woman at the well. So let's read this together, okay? It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of uh, Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you water. He would have given you living water, excuse me. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become to him a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come here to draw water. So pause right there so we remember this woman does not get what Jesus is talking about. She thinks he's talking about water. Jesus isn't talking about water. He's talking about eternal life. Okay, so Jesus changes the, the subject in a sense to draw her in towards spiritual realities in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where your people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And that's where we left off last week. Okay? So we get the picture of the woman. She has, uh, Jesus is wearied from his journey. Remember, he had walked some 20 miles. And it's noon, and it's very hot. The woman has come by herself. We realize that's because she's an immoral woman, and she's not coming with all the other women to draw water because she needs to be by herself because she's rejected of the community. And so she's there by herself. Jesus is there by himself because the disciples are off getting food and supplies uh, in Sychar, and so Jesus and the woman are together. Jesus says, 
uh, I'll give you water instead of you giving me water, but the water I give you will be eternal life. And she basically says to him, that's all great and fine, but you're not the Christ. Why don't you just wait up and just be a prophet and tell me things. When the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all about this. And he says, I am the Messiah. Okay, so here's, here's where it picks up, verse 27, our text we're focusing on today. Just then, just as he said, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and they went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has another brought him food to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do, not say there are, do, do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields. They are white for harvest. Already one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, and the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, And it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Oh, that's a lot of text there, isn't it? It's a good story. Uh, so here we are, second part of dealing with this story. Let's, let's bump back up to verse 27. Let's look at the first couple of verses and see what's going on. Now remember, it's most helpful that we... And, and I side with John MacArthur on this, okay? He says that it's much more helpful, beneficial, that we go back to the text rather than trying to bring the text to us. So we need to all be transported back to the text so that we might understand it in its context rather than taking the text and bringing it to us because so much is lost when we do that. So we are all being transported back to the text that we might understand it and see what's happening. So that's what we do. We transport ourselves back to the text. So it says, just then as disciples came back, where did they come from? They came back from Sychar where they were going to gather supplies. Why? Because they were hungry and they were thirsty. And they were tired from their journey. Okay, so they come back. And what do they notice? What's the scene? Jesus, their rabbi, was standing there with an immoral Samaritan woman. Now remember, Samaritans were a mixed race. The Jews and Samaritans were at odds with each other. And men who were Jews did not talk to women in public. And, and rabbis in particular did not speak to women in public. And so they walk up and they see their rabbi talking to a woman, not, not just a woman, but a woman of Samaria, and, and not just a woman of Samaria, but an immoral woman from Samaria. And so they come up on this scene, and what do they say? Uh, they marveled. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do, you, what do you seek? What can we help you with? Do you leave the woman alone. What can we help you with? No, they didn't say that. Why are you talking with her? And nobody said that. They didn't question Jesus. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. Now, I have a picture here for you. I think we need to envision something similar to this, this woman. Here's a bunch of women here uh, in, in Palestine. Now, this is from the late 1800s, this picture. But you can see the water jars they have. They're fairly large, and they're carrying them on their heads. Uh, they carry just enough of what they personally can carry, but enough, they're not, she's not just filling up 
you know, a little canteen of water for her to sip on. No, she's getting water for the day, for chores or for, for uh, cooking or for what, whatever it might be. So uh, she's got a, a pot large enough to what she can carry. And so we should envision something similar to this, is that she's got a large pot that she's been filling from the well. And, uh, and it says, so, the text says, you look at your Bible, it says, when the disciples walked up and didn't question Jesus, they didn't say anything, so the woman left her water jar. Now, that word so is, is an important word. It's, it's really a transition. And what it means there is so accordingly then she left, or therefore she left her water jar, or consequently she left her water jar. Because the disciples didn't say anything, she left her water jar and went to the city. Now, what significance might that have, that the woman left her water jar there? I think a couple things. Number one, it indicates she's coming back. Okay, she's, she's leaving it there. She's going to come back. But what does that have to do with the disciples not saying anything? It's because the disciples didn't say anything that she felt comfortable enough to leave her water jar and go to the town. She feels accepted in their company. She's not threatened by them. She seeks their well-being, possibly, in leaving water for them. She knows they've been traveling. She trusts that they will be there when she returns. I think no less than all these things. She said, I know you'll be here when I come back. I trust you. You've accepted me when no one else has accepted me. I was an outcast to all of society until I came on these group of people. And look, his disciples came up, and now I'm in trouble. But what does she find? That she's not rejected by them either. Amazing. No wonder his disciples marveled at what was happening. This would not have been the case in a normal circumstance, but Jesus comes on the scene and changes everything, doesn't he? She goes to the town, and she says, Come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? A man who told me all I ever did. Now, when she says, all I ever did, what do we think when we hear that? Now, he didn't open a book and say, the date of your birth. You did, and he started going through all these things. You know that's not what happened. So what happened? He told me all I ever did. The things that have set me apart from society that tell me I'm a terrible person. These, these are the things that he said. The things that she worked to keep secret. Now, the town knew she was an immoral woman. But five husbands and now she's living with a sixth man and that man is not her, her husband. Does everybody know all those details? We don't know, but it seems as though Jesus knew more than the information she was given or that the town knew about her, right? So her sins were exposed. When her sins were exposed, what did it leave her to? Or when her sins were exposed, what was her response? When your sins are exposed, what is your response? Imagine you walk up on a man who tells you your dirtiest, deepest secrets. But it's not just a man. It's a man who says, I know all this, but notice I haven't turned away from you. I know all this, but here I am speaking to you face to face. I know all of this, and everybody tells me I should run away from you, close my eyes, get away from the woman, but here I am. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here next to you. Now ask me for a drink, and I will give you eternal life. I know all the depth of your sin, and yet still, ask me and I will give you eternal life. Amazing. 
Jesus speaks to that today to each one of us. He knows the depth of your sin, even the things that you keep out of the public eye, the things that only you know. You think you're the only one that knows. You are not the only one that knows. He knows every, even the intention of the heart. You know that? Listen to the words of David from Psalm 32. It says, blessed, this is verses 1 through 5, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom, whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up from the summer heat. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The question I have for you this morning is, when you're met face-to-face with the Word of God and your sin is exposed, how will you respond? That's the question. How will you respond? We see how she responded. When everything that was bad was uncovered, what did she do? She ran and she told everyone, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Come see Jesus. Just want to remind you of 1 John 1, 5 through 10. It says, remember this is John, same John that's, that's writing the gospel reading from. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we imagine each and every day, each and every moment that we have an encounter with Christ. That we are the one who is immoral. We are the one who is the sinner. We are the one who ought to be rejected, not only by humanity, but by God himself. And as we stand there in our encounter with Christ, what does he do to us? He does not turn us away. But instead, he offers eternal life, forgiveness of sin, mercy, and grace. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. He offers us forgiveness, even though he knows the depth and the truth of our sin. So don't think that we serve a Savior who says, you're dirty, go away. I'm going to look for the clean ones. Absolutely not. For Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, and you all fall in line behind me. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not the righteous. We just sang about that, didn't we? Not the righteous, but sinners he came to save. And that is you and that is me. We all stand before Jesus, deserving to be rejected, but we are not by faith in Christ. We are not rejected. Verse 31. Meanwhile, okay, so this this scene is happening. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to co- and accomplish his work. Again, 
we have a third situation. Okay, remember Nicodemus, where we just read, back in chapter 3. Nicodemus, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, um, how can I enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? He doesn't get it. And then we get a woman. And Jesus says, ask me for a drink and I'll give you living water. And she says, uh, but you don't have a cup. And then he says to the disciples, I have food you don't know about. And someone says, hey, did someone bring him some food? So again and again, John wants us to see that people don't get it. But again, what does Jesus do? He, can, he continues on. He persists. Rabbi, eat. I have food that you don't know about. And by the way, can we see both things? Can we see the divinity of Jesus here, but then also mixed with his humanity? Remember, Jesus fully God, fully man. Can you see both here again? That Jesus, wearied from his journey, needs a drink of water. But then a woman comes up and he knows everything about her life. That, that is a man and that is God. And then he says, I have food that you don't know about. That is, he needs to eat. He hasn't eaten anything. His body, his flesh needs to eat. But he says, but I have food you don't know about, and it's not physical food. It's something different. What is, what is Jesus eating? The disciples said to one another, someone brought him something to eat. Jesus says, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He continues on with this up in, in, in John chapter 6. And I just want to read it because it helps us really understand the picture of what Jesus is telling us. It says, John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Pause right there. Jesus is hungry and thirsty right now. And he's telling us in John 6, he is the bread of life, and he is, uh, anyone who comes to him will never thirst. Verse 36, but, but I say to you, you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And, and verse 39 tells us, okay, so Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the Father. What is, what is his food? What is his will? What is the thing that Jesus is doing that he is feasting on? Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes shall have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Okay, so what is it that Jesus is feasting on? What is, what is the will of the Father for Jesus? That he would seek and save the lost. And that they would have eternal life. And so he is doing the will of God right now. So rather than taking a drink from the woman, what would he rather do? I, will give, I want to give you a drink. I want to give you eternal life that you might drink and never be thirsty again. So Jesus, instead of feeding his body, feeds his soul by doing the work of God, which is spreading eternal life. All right, write this in your notes. Jesus is the life giver of the soul. And so what does that tell us? That without feasting on Jesus, you will die. If Jesus is the life giver of the soul, he says he is the bread of life, John 6, 52 through 54, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, 
couple different ways we could understand that. As we know, the Roman Catholic Church understands that by taking um, what we would call the Lord's Supper, what they take it every, every time they have Mass. Actually, that's the highlight of the Mass, is eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ, because if you don't do that, you don't have life. Was Jesus talking about true food and drink? In the sense that you need to actually eat something, put it in your mouth and drink something. Or is he talking about how he is the bread of life? Is he talking about how if you ask me, I'll give you a drink and you will live forever? Jesus is giving something that's not physical. He's giving something spiritual. And so we know that if you are consumed by feeding your soul with something else and you think in that you have eternal life, you don't. Now, what could those things be? Those things could be your morality, your goodness, how good of a person you are. The thing that could feed you could be your knowledge, how much you know even about God or Scripture. That won't give you eternal life. The Pharisees tried, didn't they? That didn't work out well for them. Even religious things, and sometimes especially religious things, can lead us away from the Savior rather than to Him. Because you think that in those things you have life when actually you have life in the Savior Himself. Next thing I want to ask you related to this is, do you crave the will of God more than you crave food? I... uh, Sometimes I get very easily distracted or uh, maybe, maybe you would say zoned out into a job. Um, if it's something particularly that I really enjoy. Uh, for example, I was working on something yesterday at the house. By the way, if you're wanting to come drop by for a visit, wait a couple of days. <laughs> um, my house is a wreck right now. Uh, not Amanda's fault by any means. Uh, I, uh, I, I, or the, or the girls, okay? No one has done this uh, but me. And the house is wrecked because we've had to do some, uh, some things around the house. Um, but anyway, uh, I start, I get into this task. I was painting a little bit yesterday. I was painting a painting. You know, I, I looked at, at the time, and I realized I had missed lunch. Um, I didn't realize. I didn't know what time it was. I was just in a zone, and I was, I was, uh, working hard, but you know, when I was doing that work and, and, and I was distracted, I, was, I wasn't thinking about my body, I was thinking about the test that had to be done. And I think much in the same way, do, do you crave in your life doing the will of God? Do you crave doing what feeds your body? Do you crave feeding what it is that you as a person desire, or do you crave the things that God desires. Because I, I genuinely, I truly believe, and this has been my experience, is that when we are feasting on Christ or we're pursuing the will of God, that our will becomes secondary. So it's almost as if we, 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 we eat one thing or the other. We are eating the will of God or we, we are eating our will, right? Those are the two things here for following the imagery. And if we are consumed by eating the will of God, I'm full. I don't, I don't have anything left for me. But if we are eating, eating our will all the time, likewise, what is there nothing left for? There's nothing left for the will of God. You're not hungry for that. Right? So we need to pursue the will of God. This is the same as when, when, when Satan came and he, he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Remember that? What did, what did he say? It says, Jesus was led up, Matthew 4, 
Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Let's not think that Jesus wasn't hungry, okay, that he used his divinity to override his stomach. It's not what happened. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He answered, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is our life. This is our sustenance. This is our everything. This is what we live by. And if we don't have that, we don't have anything. I just wonder this morning, have you found yourself feasting on your own will or your own desires because you're going to find yourself hungry at the end of the day? You're missing something. Something is not right in my life. Something, I just can't figure it out, but I just, I'm unsettled every day. I need more. I want more. Well, maybe it's because you're consumed eating your desires all day long and not the desires of God. Man lives on the word of God, the will of God. Pursue that, and I can guarantee you, your soul won't be unsatisfied. But you find your satisfaction in doing the will of God. So when suffering comes, I'm doing the will of God. I'm, I'm satisfied. Right? When heartache comes, I'm satisfied because I'm doing the will of God. You won't find yourself feeble or wearied when that time comes. Look at verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Now, I might say that to you. Jimmy, do you not say, yet four months and then comes the harvest? You say, no, I've never said that before in my life. <laughs> no, I do not say. Uh, I've never said that. I've never thought that. So what did they say that? Uh, well, com commentators are really... Uh, when we start getting to this part of the text, really, um, you're going to find a plethora of different interpretations on what this text is meaning. Um, but here's one thing. When you say, yet there are four months, then comes the harvest. Here, here's two ways to understand that. Number one, it was a proverb of the area or that the disciples were familiar with. It was just a proverb that people say. Okay? Yet four months, and then comes the harvest. You know, we have little sayings that we say that have nothing to do with anything, but we all know what they mean. Right? Um, it could have been something like that, meaning you do the work, and then you wait, and then you harvest. Could mean that. Second thing it could mean is that Jesus was just pointing out that in four months the harvest was coming. Okay? That's the second thing it could mean. He says, look, I tell you. But either way, the harvest is not right now. Okay? That's what he's saying. It shouldn't be yet. But he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. That which is there, you, you think shouldn't be there yet. But it is. That's what he's saying. See the fields, they are white for harvest. Which you should say, whoa, they shouldn't be white for harvest yet. That's, that's our natural response we should have to that. He says in verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages. But he shouldn't be yet. And gathering fruit for eternal life. Well, okay, now we're not talking about... A field anymore. Now we're talking about eternal life again. Seems like we're changing back and forth. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For the saying holds true. Now we know this is a saying. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus is teaching them. Teaching them something that I, I think is very difficult to grasp, and I'm telling you this morning, I spent a lot of time 
trying to discern what is the main point here because you could go many different ways. And I just really want to tell you about three of them and then tell you how we arrive at a general principle, okay? This text is difficult. It doesn't seem like it because it's just kind of a story. But it is a difficult text. It was for me, and it seems as though it has been for commentators throughout history. Here's one of the issues we have. Is Jesus teaching them how the present situation is working with the woman? Or is he teaching them a general principle about all situations like this, and he's using this situation as an example to teach them about the future? He's saying, I want you to know how this is working, and this is how it will work from this time on. Or is he saying, this seems strange to you? Let me tell you what's going on. And it just applies to that current situation. Okay? Is the present situation being used as an example to form a basic principle, or is the situation an end in itself? That's just another way of saying what I just said. Does the principle apply to just the disciples or to all Christians? That's another thing I think we should try to figure out. Okay, here's the issue. It says in your text, others have labored. Do you see that in your text? Look at it. Others have labored, and you now enter into their labor. Who are the others who have labored? Okay, it says, who are the others? Number one could be John the Baptist. John's ministry reached this area. Was he preparing the way for the gospel in this circumstance? And so he came, just as Luke 16, 16 says, the law and the prophets were until John. They had the good news of the kingdom preached for everyone else forces their way into it. So basically, John was preparing the way, right? He was preparing the hearts. Some believe it's referencing here the others who have labored are John the Baptist, preaching the gospel, baptizing. Uh, okay, number two, uh, preaching repentance, I, sh I should say. Number two, who could be the others who have labored? Could be the prophets. The prophets have labored. Moses and other historical leaders included in this. They've paved the way by means of the word of God. Okay, so others have labored. Peter would agree with this, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be uh, yours, they searched, they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he uh, predicted the sufferings of Christ and their subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so Peter's saying, you know, the prophets themselves, they, they, were, they saw the, the tension and one day these things are going to be great, but it's not for me. It's for the future. And so did they pave the way for the gospel of Christ to come? That's number two. Number three, here's the third option of who the others are. Who are the others who uh, prepared the way, who have done work so that the disciples might enter into their labor? Uh, Jesus and the woman. Referencing this particular situation. If we keep reading, what we find is that many people are about to come to Christ, right? There is a harvest, and many people are about to come to Christ and believe in him, not only because of the woman's testimony, but because of Jesus himself. So the disciples walk up into a situation that they've had nothing to do with, and all of a sudden a bunch of people are about to be uh, converted to believers. So was it Jesus and the woman who have, are the others who have done work that they haven't been participating in? He says, I sent you to reap, verse 38. 
The woman and Jesus are the only ones doing anything. The disciples seem to be bystanders and observers only. So in what way did Jesus send them in? He didn't. So all of a sudden we see that any, any way that we go to say who are the others seems to not make sense. Who are the others who have prepared the way and to what work has Jesus sent the disciples into their labor to do the harvesting? I don't know. All that to say, I don't know. Uh, and, and if I were to tell you something, honestly, um, I mean, I, the reason I gave you those options is because it's not clear. Um, so people much smarter than me and more godly than me uh, can't come to a decision. Who am I to make that decision? Okay? I don't know, but there are some options. But what I can say is we can glean a particular principle from this uh, regardless of who the others are, okay? Jesus, this is in your notes, Jesus is teaching the disciples a general principle of ministry from this specific situation. That's, that's the one thing that we need to get straight. Jesus is teaching them. There's a situation going on. There's a break, right? The woman has gone to the town to get people. Now, Jesus knows what's coming. A bunch of people are coming, and Jesus knows... And he's saying, now, while they're gone, before they come back, I just want you to know something. Let me take this as a teaching opportunity. And so he begins to tell them. And here are the two things that, that I want us to really see and points that we can uh, confirm from other texts as well is this. Number one, is that the harvest is the Lord's work and not man's. And here's what I mean by that. I didn't say harvesting is the Lord's work. Okay, I said the harvest that is, the crops that are produced that are ready to be picked, is the Lord's work and not man's. Who is the harvest or what is the harvest? Of course, it's souls coming to Christ. That's obvious, right? I did not even need to say that part. Okay, look, the fields are ready. The heads are white. That means they're ready to pick. I didn't know that. I do now, uh, and so do you. So it says, look, the fields are white. They're ready to pick. The harvest is ready, but you didn't have anything to do with that. But here... I send you in to go gather it all up. Now, how easy is that? You didn't have to sow it. You didn't have to work at it. Just go and gather it. Just go and get it. Pretty awesome. Just go gather the souls. Listen, I'll produce the fruit. Just go gather them. Just go get them. That part is the Lord's work. Now, the second thing is that the laborers are needed to work God's field. Laborers are needed to work that field, isn't that? There's a crop ready, and Jesus says, I send you to go and gather it. Listen, the hard work has already been done. Thank goodness our job is not to save souls and to prepare a crop for harvest. That's not our job. But God has done it. Just two passages I want to reference here. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed, they were helpless, they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples about the masses of people. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The Lord has prepared a harvest now. Where are those laborers to go out and get it? Who is that called to? 
I think specifically, in a specific sense, it's to ministers of the gospel. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So we were laborers in the field, but God is the one growing the crop. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. Because we can't make something grow. But it only God who gives the growth. So he who plants, he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building, he might say. Right here, I just want to, I don't know that I've ever said this in this context, but could it be that the Lord is preparing in you um, a desire to be used by him as a minister of the word, a laborer in his field. And could it be that you've been suppressing that? Say, I don't want to do that work. Uh, from the outside in, knowing what I know, I would caution anyone ever against entering into ministry, unless it's the only thing you can do. Because you will go down in flames. Uh, I do this because of several reasons. Number one, it's all my heart can find to do. Second, it's all my hands can find to do. It's pretty much the only thing I can do. <laughs> so there you go. I'm kind of stuck, aren't I? So uh, it's, I'm stuck in a good way because the Lord cut out other options for my life, didn't he? Is it possible that the Lord would use you in that capacity? Maybe, maybe not in the capacity of preaching and teaching, but maybe in a different capacity. Okay, There are very many ways that God can use you as a laborer in his field. Do you know what, though? In a general sense, we can all be laborers in God's field in this way, in that we are working together to harvest what God has prepared. Are you ministering to the soul next to you? Do you even know the person next to you? Maybe start there. Okay? That's step one. Know their name. Know their heart. You already know Doug. That's Doug, everybody. Okay, so let's read these last few verses, and we're going to end here. We need to be laborers in the field. Is this called just to the disciples? No. Was it to the disciples specifically? Yes. Is it only applied to them? No. It's it's, it can be applied to ministers of the, of the gospel in a specific sense. In a general sense, it can be applied to all of us as we all partner together in laboring in God's field. Okay? Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Now, again, we have John's little editorial note here. You know that's what he likes to do. He tells a story, first-hand account, and then he, he gives us a little note. Now that that story is wrapped up, let me tell you the reason I told you that story. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. That's the woman's testimony. That's all, that's all that was said. I saw this man. He told me all I ever did. And that was enough for them because it was an amazing story, right? Because of who said it. So when the Samaritans came to buy from him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Two days with Jesus? I would take that for sure. 41, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and now we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And right there, that's the whole reason that John told us this story. Remember what John said. John 20, 30, and 31. 
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But he did include this one. This is a sign that Jesus did. He included this one. Why? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why is this written? That we may believe. Listen to what Jesus did. This story stuck with John, and he wanted us to know this story. Jesus proved himself, last point in your notes here, Jesus proved himself to be the Savior of the world to the most unlikely group of people, didn't he? Let's leave this place, Jerusalem, Judea. Let's go to Samaria. And when they step foot in Samaria, what do they see? Masses converted to Christ. Shouldn't we go to Jerusalem where all the religious people are? They're like a cleaner people, you know? Maybe, maybe Jesus, you'd like these people better. No. Let's go to Samaria. And that's where the masses come. What an unlikely situation. Many of them believed. Now, remember, many of them believed, but not all of them did. Not all of them did. Even at the preaching of Jesus Christ himself, not all believed. And isn't that what we have continually throughout the Gospels? Jesus Christ himself preaching the Gospel. And what was the ultimate response? Kill him. Crucify him. Blasphemy. Many believed. John 8, 45 through 47. Because I tell you the truth, if you do not believe me, which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is because you are not of God. God is the one making the harvest. God is the one preparing the crops. God is the one giving the growth. Not you, but who are we called to be? Those who go out. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about how evangelism is a call to each and every one of us. And we are called to go and spread the word. We are not called to make it grow, but we are called to go and make the name of Jesus Christ known. And what about him? That he is the savior of the world. And I hope that everyone in here this morning knows that. Not, knows it in your, not that you know it in your mind, but that you know it in your heart. You are not too unclean for Jesus Christ, our Savior. But he beckons all, he calls all, come and drink of the well that is eternal life. And he calls each one of us today. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you are the one who calls and there is no other Savior. There is no other Savior in the world. For everyone who is saved, they are only saved by means of Jesus Christ. There is no other one. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other Savior. He is the great Savior. He is my Savior. He is our Savior. He is the one that we come to lift up His name. He is the one that we come to praise today. And now, God, we just reflect this morning on this text we stand from a distance and we marvel. How could you, in the midst of our sin, approach us and not turn your head and look away in disgust at who we are? But no, that's not you. Instead, you draw us in and you say, take and drink and you can have eternal life. We thank you that you are a kind Savior, that you are gracious and merciful continually to us sinners. We are here to give you praise. 
I pray now that as we sing this last song together, that your name is lifted high, that you are given the praise of our lips and most significantly of our hearts.